Did you know that in the 1730s, General Oglethorpe recruited Scottish Highlanders to defend his new colony of Georgia against the Spanish to the south? Welcome to the Lore of the South. South. Welcome back to Lore of the South with me, Kelly Cruz. Well, y'all, time is cruising right along. It's already September, and sorry, this is a tad bit late. I just really had a case of I didn't want us for a few days. So, this time it's on me. Also, with it being September, I've noticed some love bugs emerging. You know, further north, they get pretty leaves. Down here, we get love bugs. But we don't have to worry about any snow or ice roads, so, you know, I guess that's the trade-off. We are getting closer to the spooky season, and I need y'all's help finding spooky stuff to watch and review here on the show. I'm so picky about horror, so y'all don't be too rough on me. I can handle only so much cheese, unless it's like Shaun of the Dead or Stand Against Evil, that kind of thing. And I'm looking forward to our Straight Out of the South episodes. I've got one story I've been sitting on since we started the podcast nearly two years ago. And it's a doozy. Y'all ready for some history-making news? With us in the beginning throes of climate change and worldwide droughts, there have been worldwide discoveries coming to light all over the globe. This is a short list of some of the things to have surfaced coming to us from euronews.green. All over Western Europe, what are known as hunger stones are re-emerging. These stones were thought to have been placed by our ancestors in times of great drought and famine as warnings to future generations. Well, with water levels at an all-time low, the stones are back to warn us. Next, in Serbia, along the Danube, A whole fleet of Nazi warships can be seen for the first time since the 1940s. In Italy's Po River, an unexploded World War II bomb emerged, which Italy's military safely detonated. In other places along the same river, long-abandoned medieval town walls are seen again for the first time in hundreds of years. In Spain, what is known as the Spanish Stonehenge is above water for the first time since 1963, when the area was flooded to create a reservoir. The hinge was built sometime in 5000 BCE. This was during the time where ancient people were just beginning to farm, build permanent settlements, create art and religion. And here in the States, we've got old Las Vegas Mafia hits and barrels being uncovered in Lake Mead. And a bit on the happier side of things, the Paluxy River in Texas has receded so much, new 130 million year old dino tracks are now visible. And y'all, we went several times to Glen Rose to visit the Dino Valley Park, and I was fascinated by those tracks. They had kept several sets from the rocks years ago and put them in a museum to preserve them for both humans and the environments. I have pics somewhere of me and my cousin swimming in that river too. I can also remember being really little and tripping along in the shallow waters and my dad saying to me, did you find another footprint kid? Meaning I had followed into a dino track. Happy memories in that place. 
So let all the historians and scientists and all the different kinds of ologists out there gather all the info they can about these relics that have come to light. Then the world as a collective really needs to get it together and fix this global meltdown. Did y'all hear the Earth actually sped up this year and has been on a steady increase since 2020? Y'all don't make me start quoting George Carlin. And that brings us to episode 51, The Marshall House. Located at 123 East Broughton Street in Savannah, Georgia, the hotel is an eye-catcher, and in its many forms and under numerous owners has been a Savannah mainstay since it opened its doors in 1851. It is the oldest hotel still in use today in the city of Savannah. The hotel was the brainchild of Mary Magdalene Lever Marshall. She was the only child of Gabriel and Mary Lever. Mr. Lever had been a cabinet maker in London. Another source I read says that he was French. He foresaw the great many opportunities that lay ahead of him in the new colony of Georgia. Mary was born September 7, 1783, and as her father had predicted, the family had become very wealthy. The Leavers had a plantation just outside the city and owned lots on several of the squares. Gabriel Lever, the cabinet maker, had become a real estate tycoon. Lever died when Mary was 12, and her education was carried on by her mother and governess. And only five years later, she met and married 20-year-old James Marshall from St. Augustine, Florida. From what I can find, it seemed the two were a happy couple. Mary became known for her philanthropy, as well as her good and smart dealings throughout the city of Savannah. The couple adopted a child from an Irish couple in 1840, who had already had 10 little ones. They named the toddler Margaret. And then only five years later, James passed away, and Mary never remarried. The daughter Margaret, however, would go on to marry the neighbor. Now y'all check out this name. Somebody's family were obsessed with the Saxons. Adelbert Ethelstan Waldborough Barclay. And he lived next door to the Marshall Mansion, in a house which would later be called the Wetter House. Adelbert and Margaret would have three children, that only one survived to adulthood. She was born in 1858 and named after her grandmother. The following year, Margaret filed for divorce from Adelbert, citing abuse, intoxication, and adultery. It took three years for the divorce to be finalized, and Margaret only lived for another four after that. She died from what was listed as paralysis of the heart at age 25. From what I can gather, Mary assumed custody of little Mary and old Barkley went off to New York, or at least that's where he's buried. Mary Marshall was known throughout Savannah for her business sense and good works. She was the builder, owner, and proprietor of several well-known buildings in Savannah, several of which are located on Oglethorpe Square and another across from Colonial Park Cemetery. These Savannah gray brick multi-story buildings were used as rental properties. 
all built before the Civil War and in the same decade as the Marshall House. Mary conceived of the idea for the Grand Hotel in a time where Savannah had become a boomtown. It was a port city and the railroad had come. There were businessmen and sometimes their family that it would arrive by train and they needed accommodations to meet their stations in life. And Mary accomplished this in the Marshall House Hotel. It's considered the crown jewel in her real estate portfolio. Its beauty and the location were perfect. It was smack dab in the middle of Savannah's upscale shopping district. The wrought iron balconies that we see on the old building today were put into place in 1857 and they transformed a stately building into one that looked like it was straight from the French Quarter or maybe even Europe itself. Mary, who was born at the end of the American Revolution, lived through the Civil War and into Reconstruction. She passed away at the age of 93 on January 26, 1877. The Savannah Morning News reported, She had no sickness or disease, but passed away gradually and imperceptibly, growing weaker and weaker from day to day during the past week until she sank into sleep. She and her family are all interred out at Laurel Grove Cemetery. Now to get into some of the historical goings-ons at the hotel. The hotel was twice used as a hospital during the yellow fever epidemics that hit the city. In the epidemic of 1854, 1,040 people died. In the 1876 outbreak, another 1,000 souls were lost, all in the matter of two weeks. Then, from 1864 to 1865, the hotel was a hospital for the occupying Union Army. The many rooms were filled with the walking and mortally wounded. The first floor had been used as an operating theater where countless amputations took place. This dangerous and life-altering, but hopefully life-saving surgery was all too common in this era. Amputations took place to try to stop the spread of infections like gangrene and sepsis. Or if the bone was struck by a mini ball or grape shot, many times the bone would just shatter and there was nothing that could be done for that during this time. So off with the limb. The process was much more finessed than just hacking off the limb. The surgeon had a variety of tools and steps he would need to go through and speed was of the utmost importance. In most cases, anesthesia was not always available, though both ether and chloroform were in use during this time. So the surgery would begin by a couple of strong orderlies holding the patient down. Maybe the patient would get a stick or a spoon handle to bite down on. A tourniquet was placed tightly above where the cuts were to be made. And y'all, this is where we get graphic, so hang on to your butts. 
The surgeon would make his first cut through the skin with the scalpel. He'd then leave a cap of skin at the back to later close over the wound. Next came the Catalan knife, a large curved blade, kind of picture a sickle, but not quite so fully crescent shaped. And the large curved blade would make quick work of going through tough muscle. The blade would be used in a circular cutting motion so that it could cut completely through and around the appendage. Next up was the bone saw. The teeth on the bone saw were fine and close together to help prevent bone splintering. Once the limb was off, the surgeon would then use a rasp to file down any sharp edges of bone so that once the wound was closed, the bone would not try to penetrate through the closure. The skin flap was then folded over the end of the limb and stitched nearly completely closed, leaving a small drain hole then bandaged and plastered in hopes of a good healing process. This process was carried out innumerable times during the war, whether in a field tent or a fancy hotel. After the war, the hotel continued its operations and even started its own volunteer fire department. Then in 1895, the hotel closes and undergoes its second refurbishment. Upon its reopening in 1899, the hotel now hosted electric lights, a bathroom on every floor with running hot and cold water. Real estate developer Herbert Gilbert from Jacksonville, Florida, buys the hotel in 1933 and renamed the property after himself. He owns the hotel for about eight years before selling. This is when the hotel undergoes its third renovation and opens again for about 11 years before closing again. This time due to the economic downturn in the area and also the high price of trying to bring such an old building up to modern codes. The upper three floors were closed off through the 1990s and shops had taken up residence in what had once been the lobby and the dining areas. In 1998, the Marshall House was purchased by a hotel group with an eye on restoring the old place to its former glory. And their contractors made a gory discovery along the way. There had been reports of odd and even horrid smells on and off again. And one day, while replacing the floorboards that were particularly discolored and nearly rotten, the construction crew made a grisly discovery of a limb pit. That's right, right under the floorboards of the hotel. I guess instead of scarring slash scaring the townspeople of Savannah by loading up a wagon of people parts to bury outside of town, they just pried up some floorboards to dump the discarded limbs in. 
It's said that the only reason that in more than a hundred years that these limbs weren't discovered was because of how cold that winter was the year that the war ended. And the cold allowed the parts to decay at a slower rate and not emit an overpowering smell. Also, y'all, a hundred years ago, everybody stunk. They probably would write off any smells belonging to the living and probably not the dead. The hotel reopened in 1999 and has been open ever since. 65 rooms, a grand lobby, staircase, dining room, gorgeous balconies, all restored to their 19th century glory with the convenience of the modern era. Behind the lobby counter, you'll find a portrait of Mary Marshall herself. The Marshall House was able to purchase the painting from Jim Williams, which might be a familiar name for all of you if you've seen or read Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. It's definitely worth a read. There are some serious characters in that book. Her husband's portrait can be seen above the fireplace located in a sitting area. And some of the first odd happenings were reported by cleaning staff. Smells ranking somewhere between bad and horrible could be smelt in rooms 214, 314, and 414. The hotel staff tried everything from air fresheners to deodorizers to ionizers and ozone machines. But nothing seemed to get the smell out. The smell was described as something smelling like something between smoke, sewer, and rotting flesh. Could it be a phantom smell left over from the victims of war or the yellow fever epidemic? Yellow fever is a rough way to go and could definitely cause a smelly death. The staff resorted to prayers and this seemed to clear up rooms 214 and 314, but the issue persisted in 414. To just be able to clean the room, staff would play gospel music to try to keep the odors at bay. In the now office where the surgeons once performed amputations, thumping can be heard coming from the floorboards. Is this the residual sounds of when the orderlies were prying up the boards and hiding the discarded limbs? Footsteps can be heard throughout. The footfalls sounding as though they are coming from heavily booted feet. One night manager reported that when she was closing the cash office for the night, a trickster spirit liked to mix up her piles of paperwork and rearrange her stacks of money. She then acknowledged the ghost's presence and told them, I like a joke as much as the next person, but please don't mess with the paperwork or the money. And it never happened again. From the same office, a glimpse of a one-armed man has been seen wearing what appears to be the uniform of a Union soldier. One sleeve pinned and empty, his ghost has been spotted throughout the property, and it makes me wonder if the soldier was a one-time patient who might not have made it, and his restless spirit still roams the hotel. The room above the bar is also known to be a noisy one. All sorts of noises can be heard from below, even when the room is supposedly empty. Up on the third floor is where the spirits of children are reported to play. 
So if you're looking to maybe have an experience for yourself, request a room on the third floor. At night, when all else is quiet and all of the woo girls from the bachelorette parties have all passed out, many have reported sounds of children playing in the corridors, running and giggling, the sounds of a lively game of marbles, and also the sounds of bouncing rubber balls can be heard. When guests open doors to peer out, the halls are always clear, though every once in a while, the apparition of one of these children may be spotted, but they always disappear before anyone can catch up to them. A guest, this one a doctor, reported to the desk at checkout that he had been awakened in the middle of the night to what felt like a child tickling the bottoms of his feet. Another common way guests are awoken in the night is the feeling of a hand pressed to their forehead like someone is checking for a fever, or other times there will be a pressure on the wrist like a nurse taking one's pulse. So it seems not all the spirits here aren't just mischievous, but helpful as well. A mother and her child were staying in room 304. The mother heard her child talking to someone in the bathroom so she called out and asked who her daughter was talking to. The little girl answers, well, to the little boy, he's sitting in the bathtub. The mother goes in to investigate, and about that time, her daughter lets out a yelp. She opens the door to find her little girl clutching the back of her arm and crying, he bit me, that boy bit me. The mother pulled back the shower curtain to only find an empty tub but there was a perfectly round and child-sized bite mark left on her daughter's arm in a place impossible for her to have reached. The two were given a new room, no questions asked. Now you might wonder why there would be so many spirits of children in a hotel. Well, remember the yellow fever epidemics. The hotel served as a hospital in two of the three recorded outbreaks. It was common for children to accompany ill parents into a sick house if they had no other family to stay with them. So, maybe the old place captured the last few happy memories of these children at play before they succumbed to the yellow fever? Side notes, we've never stayed at the Marshall House, but it is on our list, and at the least, I'd like to go see the little mini-museum that they keep on the third and fourth floors. It houses lots of little relics that have been found over the years during the different renovations, so y'all check it out if, if and when you're in Savannah. Now, this is a new segment I'm adding to the podcast, just for a little bit more filler for y'all. I came across this article, or blog rather, on a blog called the Discoverer Blog, and it's about the oldest building in every state, from Alabama to Wyoming. I thought it might be fun to work our way through them a couple at a time. First up, we have the Joel Edens House, originally built in Limestone County, Alabama in 1810. The one-and-a-half-storied log cabin was known as a hall-and-parlor style. 
The cabin has a gabled roof and chimneys at both ends. The home was moved piece by piece to a living history museum in Huntsville in 2007, where you can visit it today. Next is the Kodiak History Museum in Alaska. This building was also built in 1810, when Alaska was still a Russian territory. It was originally a warehouse, then a private home, and since 1967 it has housed the Kodiak Historical Museum. And next week we will, not next week y'all, week after next, we'll be covering the next two oldest buildings in the U.S. And as I mentioned at the top of the show, it's getting to be that spooky time of year again. And I do want y'all's scary movie recommendations. Let's see, I've got the first one of the season for y'all. Actually, is it the second that I already give y'all a review? I'll have to check my show notes, guys. Let's start with a funny one. Day Shift, available on Netflix, starring Jamie Foxx, Snoop Dogg, and Dave Franco. Y'all, this one started off a little bit slow, but hang in there for when Franco shows up. That's when the funny starts. Also, Cowboy Snoop. Anyway, it was super funny to me and held my attention all the way through. I like movies and actors who aren't afraid to laugh at themselves and the ridiculousness of a plotline. With all these movies I'm reviewing for Spooky Season, y'all be the judge if your kids can handle them or not. Um, I recommend using IMDB. It has a really good parental guide. It will even break down the number of swears in a movie. If y'all have recommendations for me, y'all can let me know on social media. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok. There you'll get pictures from that relate to each episode, and you'll also receive show updates like the one I put out about this one being late. You might also want to consider checking out our Patreon if y'all would like to help us out. For three bucks a month, you'll be getting some extra content, and if we ever get sponsors, you'll also get commercial-free episodes. And all of this will help cover hosting costs. And y'all, I just got my laptop out of the shop, and whoa. Sticker shock. It was pricey. So do us a favor and check out the Patreon, no pressure, but search The Lore of the South on the Patreon app or website and check it out. I'll also post a link to it in the show notes. And with that, we'll talk to y'all later on Lore of the South.